This episode is brought to you exclusively by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Listeners of this very show can download a free ebook on us for free and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash 100 words. Now, here's the rest of the show. This podcast is part of the How We Are Network. For information on this episode and many other like-minded shows, visit howweare.org. That's H-O-W-W-E-A-R-E dot O-R-G. And welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. We are sitting here at episode 90, and I have a feeling that a lot of you have probably never heard of this show before until this episode because we have such a huge guest on. So, uh, welcome. On the show today is Stephen Egerton from The Fucking Descendants. He also played in All, and he currently plays in the iteration of Flag Descendants. Jesus Christ. Let's just get some business out of the way, and then I'll try to wrap my head around how I describe my love for that band. Visit propertyofzack.com. They are great media partners. You should visit that site. You will become educated in what's happening within independent music from tours and releases and everything else. That's the place to go. And then visit 100wordspodcast.com. I post stuff throughout the week there, so I would enjoy you to engage in that sort of stuff. And then you can email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, because I've been getting some people recommending other guests. Because I'm kind of, I'm in that level now where it's like, I want to start to think outside of my own typical network or whatever. So if you have ideas, please email them to me. If you would be so kind as to uh, drop a review on the iTunes store. So find 100 Words Podcast there, drop some stars, and if you're feeling ever so generous, you can write a few words about it. Uh, It's been slowed around the holidays because I I obsessively check it. Probably like once a week I check, be like, oh, is there anything new? If you would do that, I would really appreciate that. Help my my OCD-ness on that. Let's talk about Stephen Egerton. So The Descendants, I credit The Descendants for getting me into independent music. Uh, I was watching the movie Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater, a great 80s movie if you have not checked it out basically it's about christian slater hosting a pirate radio station which is essentially he was kind of predating podcasts like let's be honest maybe that was an inspiration i didn't even know about that but so christian slater is doing a pirate radio broadcast to basically his high school and he is a total loner no one knows that it's him he disguises his voice great movie it throws the entire high school into upheaval and people are just like oh my gosh like this guy needs to be stopped we need to find him and in the movie he plays a descendant song der wiener schnitzel and at the time i was really into humor and music and uh, for those of you that are old enough there was a comedy duo named the jerky boys even though they didn't really do music but they did like prank phone calls and i don't know i mean you know i was in like seventh grade what do you expect like i like dick and fart humor that's fine so their wiener schnitzel came on i mean it's like a 10 second song it's punk but it's funny and i was like whoa who is this and so he says oh this is descendants and so i immediately seeked them out and actually one of my friends older brothers had summary which is basically a greatest hits collection i was like oh my gosh i saw this and you know told him about it and he let me borrow it and at that point it was like oh my god like this speaks to me the punk anger of it the sappiness of the lyrics um there was just so many things about it that i just identified with and it kind of opened my eyes up to this 
whole world of pop punk and independent music because at that time I was just teetering on the edge. I had, you know, started to fiddle around with bands that are on like the Epitaph roster as far as like Pennywise and that sort of stuff. But this kind of, you know, really pushed me over the edge. And this is where I started to get into like Lagwagon and No Use for a Name. And basically this this was my entry point into independent music. So because of that, they're so fucking important to me. I've been toying around with the idea, and I don't know why I haven't done it yet, but of getting a Descendants tattoo. Anyways, this seems to hear more there. Steven Egerton is the drummer for the Descendants, and he was gracious enough to hang out with me for about an hour on the phone. And uh, I knew him through some professional business dealings, and I'll tell that story at the beginning of the podcast. I was so ecstatic about this. Like, I, I couldn't believe that I was talking to him on the phone in this regard. And he was open enough to be like, yeah, let's go over the whole thing. Because, you know, sometimes when people agree to do an interview, they don't know that I would be like, all right, let's start you back, start you back at the beginning. So he was gracious enough to walk me through all that and probably tell stories he either hasn't thought about in a while or has recounted them a million times because of the Descendants documentary that just recently came out. I could go on for a while, but I'll let Stephen do the talking. So here he is, and I'll talk to you I was already obviously familiar with who you are as a person, what you've done musically and stuff like that. But um, we worked together when I was at Century Media Records. It, it, and it was one of those things, it was funny because, you you know, you were doing stuff with uh, the guys in that band, the Agony scene. Um, right. And it was just it was just really random because it was like the vocalist of that band was the one I communicated with the most. And he, uh, you know, he was like, yeah, there's this local guy in town that does a lot of stuff for us. And he, he just dropped your name like in an email, like very casually, not to say that he, you know, needed to like build you up like, oh, dude, this is, you know, Mr. Egerton from the Descendants and all. And like, you know, not like he would do that in email, but he was so casual about it. I saw that. I saw your name in there and I was like. Oh shit, that's right. And like, I immediately took me back to, you know, my 14, 15 year old self. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, wait, I have to communicate with, with Steve. Oh, I don't know if I can, <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. And I'm sure a oh, lot of, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people kind of have that sort of like interactivity with you where it's like, you know, they, they view you as this entity as like, Oh my gosh, you are, you are an institution, my friend. You know, I have done my best in, in, to to not have it be that way for people <laughs> right. any longer than it need be, <laughs> you know, uh, because the reality of it is that the music scene that I grew up in, the people who are now, you know, revered and, and whatever, you know, the, the, the Black Flags and the TSOLs and the Dead Kennedys and the, you know, and the whatever bands, you know, were coming around, uh, you know, coming through Salt Lake mm. were very approachable. You know, because that was the that was the nature of the scene then. It was this was a tiny thing with not very many people involved in it. The fact that there was anybody there at all was kind of amazing. So it was, you know, everybody was very accessible. You know, you're you're these people that were making art that you know was was so incredibly meaningful to you as a kid. You know, were were people that you could just walk up to and, and ask questions and talk to and get a, get a feel for what they were like. That part of the scene, if you'll call it that was really, really impressive to me and something that to the best of my ability, if I could carry it on, I'd do, you know, because that, that was that was something that well, A, and and I'm just a dude. Like I'm a you know, right. I'm a dad. Like I'm a soccer dad. You know, I go pick up the kids. Like I'm I'm a very ordinary guy. So it, it the fact that 
that I've been lucky enough to be involved with music that had impact on people was sheerly, you know, luck and mm-hmm. happenstance. And, you know, not that, not that the passion wasn't there for it. My passion's as great as, you know, anybody else's, you know, any other famous musician or whatever, any famous musician, like I'm, I'm equally passionate about what I do, but for these bands, there was never really much expectation of anything beyond getting to play with your friends in a room, you know, maybe, maybe some shows because that would be cool. (laughs) You know, it'd be fun to play a show. You know, I mean, that's, that's where this comes from. This music comes from, you know, the excitement of actually creating the music with your friends in a room. That's, that's where it starts. And so the fact that what happened in those little rooms and, you know, spread out across the country had, and had enough of an impact to eventually, for us to even be talking about it now, you know, all these years on, is amazing yeah. and, and highly unexpected, you know, so, so you'll find a, you know, a great deal of characters throughout all this that, that are, you know, very ordinary guys that are just as surprised as they could be that, that like anyone is, you know, that, that, that it had the kind of impact that, that it did. Yeah. You know, there's tons of bands from, from our time and place that, that, have that same feel. I, we just did a bunch of shows. Uh, Flag just did a bunch of shows with PSOL, mm-hmm. who I who were literally the very first guys that ever took took Carl and I under their wing. You know, in, in our old band in Salt Lake City when we were kids. You know, they took us out on all the first shows we got to do outside of town, and they were very ordinary guys to us, very cool guys that really helped us out. And they were, uh, you know, not ordinary but approachable. Mm-hmm. I guess is more. You know, they were. They were just, you know, guys in a band. They were stoked to be there. We were stoked to be there. And, and they were like, wow, you guys are cool. Like, you know, here, let's come do some other shows. And they had a massive impact on my life. And that's, and that's still what they're like now, too. You know, they're, they're those guys, you know, that grew up loving this, stoked to get to do it, appreciative that they get to do it, and, and knowingly lucky that they've had such a long, a long time of being able to do it. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I think the most important point, and obviously, like, I think it reflects on, you know, pretty much every aspect of obviously what you've done musically is the fact that the moment that you think you're cool, you're not cool. Like that, 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 especially from our culture, as far as like, when you start to think that, you know, what you have, you know, done, uh, however large or small of an impact it is, you feel like that is like, oh my God, like, yeah, I'm fucking awesome. That's when you cross over and you start to lose perspective of, Obviously, like you were saying, what you, why you did it in the first place, who you are, like if you're even a real person, like you just start to lose that, and then you become disconnected from everything that started you off. Absolutely, absolutely, and there's the luck, you know, the luck of of getting to to play with Descendants in the first place. Which Carl and I were fanatical about Descendants when we were kids, so we, you know, for us to get to play with them at all was already amazing. Well, then, you know, we did those records and those tours, and then and then you know moved on to being all all was fraught with like no, you know, not much popularity or, or anybody really, you know, I mean, there, there were some diehard people that loved what we did. There's no question. And, and, you know, but the funny thing is like the, the way it felt and worked for, for us playing the music, you know, it was really basically the same only, you know, the first all show, there were 35 people there and the ebb and flow that has been, part of it and, and exists now to this day is welcome in that it, it helps maintain your perspective on where, the, you know, what this really is and how fortunate you are to get to even do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for anybody to even give a shit this far in is amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no. You know, 
Um, and, and we'll hit on some of that a little bit later. But I, I wanted to back you up. Like you mentioned, obviously, Salt Lake City, that's where you were born and raised, correct? I, I wasn't born there, but I, I lived there, you know, most of my, from my age, four till till 20, I, I left and moved to Washington, D.C. So I lived there, you know, all of my formative years. Yeah. And Salt Lake, I mean, it has it, it, it has the known quantity differences from, <laughs> from yeah. other cities and that it's uh, – well, the, the thing the thing that always surprised me about Salt Lake City every time I toured through there, I mean, it's one of the easiest towns to get around. It's I, I absolutely love the way that it's set up as far as like, all right, the temple's at the center. I'll meet you on, one, you know, 15 north and uh, 17 south or, you know, whatever. Absolutely. And I, I just, yeah. it's amazing. Oh, God, but it's funny because the first times that I started to go to other cities and I was like, wow. This was really laid out stupid, you know, because because Salt Lake is just, you know, it's an iron grid, you know, extending, uh, you know, until until you basically run into mountains, you know, or or, or whatever. It just right. kind of flows that way, and it was an interesting city in the late seventies, early eighties, because it was close enough to California, and there was an influx of, of people coming to Salt Lake from other places, you know, from California in particular, because the skiing was, was you know, really good there. So Salt Lake, you know, had the very strong Mormon connection that, you know, it, it's famous for, and yet there there was a strong rebellious streak amongst young people in Salt Lake City, and it, and it, and it really, it dates back to, you know, before there was punk rock or anything else. I mean, there's, there was always a strong rebellious element in Salt Lake because mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, it, it's such an extreme, you know, the, the, the Mormon influence is so extreme that, you know, it couldn't help but breed some far extremes on the other end yeah, <laughs> of true. things. And so that was the nature of Salt Lake. So punk rock, you know, took hold very early and very strong in Salt Lake. And we actually had a surprisingly good scene there. A lot of bands come through and would be very surprised by how many people were, were there. And we had very good local bands. Um, and, you know, so it was a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting place yeah. <laughs> for sure. What was your, uh, what was your family structure like? Like mom and dad, do you have brothers and sisters? No, I'm, I'm an only and, and, uh, Shortly after arriving in Salt Lake, my dad sort of went on his own path. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. Took, and, took um, off. So it's just, you know, it was just mom and I. Um, Got it. My mom and I. And and um, we grew up in a, you know, a pretty poor part of town. And, you know, mm -hmm. but but fine. You know, we, we had a happy life. And um, when I was in junior high uh, in seventh grade is where I met Carl Alvarez. Mm -hmm. And we hit it off pretty quickly. And you know, here we are all of these years later, still playing together. And, you know, so, so we, we impacted each other's lives, you know, pretty dramatically. And, you know, we were, we grew up in punk rock together. Once we discovered it, we were like, whoa, and we diverted <laughs> you know, way over there. And that was our nature. We quit school and we, you know, we're music, you know, just music fanatics. That's really what we were. And, you know, in Salt Lake, there were a lot of, there were a lot of like-minded people and we, you know, we were lucky to have that environment really. Yeah. It was cool. What was your mom doing for work while you guys were there? Just kind of, you know, odds and ends in order to obviously take care of the household, so to speak. No, it was more, I was an interruption in the beginning of a college education, which as soon as I was functional enough on my own, she continued with and is now, a, you know, has a doctorate in medical informatics. I mean, she was, she was on the path to being very smart. 
be into being a smart person because <laughs> that's very much what she is. And so she now works at the Library of Medicine, National oh. Library of Medicine. Nice. But at the time, when when uh, when my dad left, we got a small apartment, and she had a job in the in the government documents section of the uh, university library at the University of Utah. She really enjoyed the library environment mm-hmm. and just kind of followed through with that. She got a, a master's in in anthropology. Um, which she was interested in too, and then another master's in library sciences, and then went on to her medical informatics degree. So she, you know, she has a she had a very very interesting trajectory to which I was, uh, you know, I, I sort of interrupted that somewhat. But <laughs> right, right. Well, that, that's that's we had, gonna... a, we had a good relationship still. Being, you know. I mean, because I I, I I like you. I mean, I'm I'm an only child as well, and my parents got divorced when they were about I was about four, and I took you know yeah. went through. Of course, I don't remember anything, but it's like, you know, went through a hellish custody battle, ended up with my mom. And like, you know, she is, uh, you know, far and away, just like the most influential person in my life. And, you know, I I presume that you probably have the same sort of feelings towards your mother. Absolutely. Everything. I mean, because it was just the two of us. There was really just us. So, you know, uh, all the all the, you know, the music that was played in my house. You know, she taught me my first chords on guitar. Taught me, you know, <laughs> attempted amazing. to teach me how to harmonize. I mean, she she was she was very supportive of of you know what I did and what I was trying to do. And you know, she she had the musical bent. She so did my dad, but she definitely did, and she was more than happy to you know foster it for me. And and so you know, very much, of course, you know, a huge influence on you know me pursuing the things that I did. And so that that's awesome that she was basically. She was sitting down with you and like showing you chords on the guitar and like how to sing and stuff like that. Totally, yeah. She taught me. She taught me how to how to like sort of listen to a song around on the guitar one string at a time until I found notes that matched. She helped me. She helped me learn how to use my ear, wow. which really was you know I, I took lessons too um, at, at different points when I was young and I started playing guitar pretty young I was nine when I started the lessons they sort they certainly you know touched on techniques and so on but I never learned to read music or anything like that I learned you know scales and things you know things that normal guitar players kind of learn in guitar lessons but but how to use my ear my mom taught me and really you know to this day it's that initial you know thing that she taught me that has you know has served me through everything else i do because it did it, now i i mix and master records i have a studio I, I produce a few records a year right everything i do i use my ear you know that that i you know i, I use that thing that she taught me all those years ago and that that combined with probably a little bit of an analytical nature, yeah, uh, you know that's that's how it comes together. That's, yeah, that's how, that's how it manifested itself over time. As you as you mentioned, obviously, like you know, meeting Carl and like that was in junior high, and obviously, as you started to um, go through the motions of being completely swallowed up by you know punk and everything that it was. You said, when did you when did you actually drop out of school? <laughs> I got kicked out about a quarter of the way into my junior year. I, I, maybe I should rephrase that. When did you get kicked out? <laughs> <laughs> when, when was I ejected? Yeah, I was forced to be ejected at, at, uh, at age barely 16. Wow. <laughs> well, it, you know, I, I was a wreck all the way through school. It was a mess. Um, was it? I was. Was it? Was high it? Practice. Okay. Was it a matter of just like you know, not showing up as well and just like being super disruptive in classes and? Okay. It wasn't so much acting out. It was just, you know, a complete disinterest. I, I decided at five I wanted to be 
musician for the rest of my life, and that's it. I never really did anything else, and school was meaningless to me because I, I felt, you know, stupidly, of course, that, that like, I, there was nothing that they could teach me, you know, because unless they were teaching me music. <laughs> right. So that, and I'm, you know, I had the, the hyperactivity, I guess now they would have called it, called it ADHD, and Unfortunately, what happened is they diagnosed me with that in junior high. And by then, the damage was already done. I had already kind of missed so much school. I mean, I was attending. I was there. I just wasn't, I wasn't, you know, in any way connected to it. Right. So, you know, I didn't learn any basic thing you learn in school. No, I'm still, still terrible with all of it. Anyway, they moved me along and, and I got a job as a dishwasher and just, you know, and, and, and then I ran away from home at 16, hitchhiked to Los Angeles, immersed myself as much as I could. That, you know, I really, I went down there with hopes of seeing Black Flag, who were unfortunately on their first U.S. tour, and I totally missed them. <laughs> but I got to see a ton of other amazing stuff, and that and that really cemented, you know, a lot of my musical, you know, direction and that kind of thing. I think everybody, um, you know, between the ages of like whatever, you know, eight and, you know, 15, 16 or whatever, has the notion to like, oh, you know, screw you, mom or dad or family member or whoever, like, I'm going to run away. But then for you to actually like do that and, and also follow through on what you want to do in regards to the, you know, musician career that you wanted to have ever since you were five years old, that takes, uh, I don't know, guts, stupidity, like a mixture of all of it. Um, Absolutely. No, I'm brazen idiocy, really. <laughs> I mean, you know, in my in my case, I'm, I would say that I'm a reasonably compliant person on most things. You know, I'm, I'm willing to go along with whatever, you know, oh, somebody wants to do this way. Well, yeah, okay, let's do that. That's cool by me. But there there is a streak of stubbornness that, that cannot be broken. <laughs> and <laughs> And that that part of me was was wholly unwilling to accept anything except that I would do music or die trying. Mm-hmm. Like and, and that was that. There was no question about that. And and I know that it just absolutely drove my mother insane. And my running away had really not you know, it wasn't a fuck you, you know, it was it wasn't like that. It was yeah. more of a like I am going to pursue my thing now. Right. You know, I think that I own the world and you know, I'm 16, I'm a full grown up and I know everything and, you know, right, it's just right. brazen idiocy. And I, you know, got in a, you know, hitchhiked to California, you know, saw bands and, you know, immersed myself in it. And then, and then a few, you know, a few months later, I had to call mom and beg for a bus to get home. You know, right. that's, that's how it worked. Then I got home and, and sort of got back together with, with, uh, the guys, you know, the, in Massacre Guys, that's the band that, that I was in in Salt Lake. You know, mm. the, we were together for ages. And Carl was around us at the very beginning, but he didn't play bass yet. So we had another guy for a while. Paul was his name. And then Paul, it was time to leave. And Carl had been sort of playing bass on his own at home. We we found some bass somewhere and we had it. At his, it was just sitting at his house and he'd been kind of jamming out on it himself. And he started to kind of get it. So we were like, well, fuck it. Let's get Carl. <laughs> you know, it made perfect sense. And then he had an incredible knack for it. And so, you know, Carl is a highly intelligent and, you know, resourceful person. So he, he sort of just figured out how to do it instantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just good, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, we, from then on, we played together. Yeah. And that really didn't stop much. 
Right. It's it's funny too because uh, a lot of people or a lot of you know the uh, reference points that people you know mention you as far as a guitarist is concerned is like you know that you are you you are extremely well versed at this genre of music as far as like what you um you know the style in which you play like it's unique and it's just funny because like very rarely do you hear people uh especially within you know punk and independent music in general uh you know labeled as some sort of like virtuoso that's labeled for you know like metal or that's labeled for you know some sort of uh, you know like steve Vai, like that those sort of people right. and, and it's just funny because it's like hearing the way that you know you were just learning shit as you went along and then now people look back at it like man you're an incredible guitarist and you're i'm sure you're just like well i I guess it's funny you know that people people sort of my musical trajectory i guess one thing one thing that that points to how all of this sort of ended up the way it did was that music that was that was available to listen to in my house um we weren't really a radio family we never listened to the radio in my house so so there were records and my mom was a deep music fan so Records were like Leon Russell, the Beatles, Joe Cocker, um, Emmy Lou Harris. Like there were there was there was that kind of music around. The Beatles were the thing that actually I mean it still was my band. The Beatles the Beatles by all you know, for for sure are the band that inspired me to do anything musically ever. Well, somewhere, you know, I was probably following a pretty normal musical trajectory, hearing whatever was coming around. And, and you know, some uh, my uncle got me a couple of Kiss records for my birthday one year. Kiss, yeah, okay, I like this stuff. This is pretty good. I started to get into that. Well, then when I was 11, a neighbor gave me the second Frank Zappa record, which is called Absolutely Free, The Mothers of Invention, right? Mm-hmm. And that record is fucking weird. I mean, it's just on another planet. It right. Is, it, it's absolutely nothing in common with with any of the kind of pop music forms that I had been exposed to, whether they be rock or pure pop like the Beatles or whatever. This was here's the stuff over here just on some other planet. Yeah, you're not your 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 brain at 11 years old realistically is not able to handle a person like Frank Zappa. Absolutely, but I went to this this record like a duck to water. I just <laughs> loved it. I yeah. was crazy about it and I and I I was obsessive about it. It altered my path. Really what happened is I just missed out on the stuff that anybody else my age was listening to. I was completely unaware of it because it it sent me in this funny direction. About the same time that that happened, my mom started singing in a band with some some guys she worked with. And um, my mom has a pretty pretty good voice. And and so she uh, said, hey, why don't you come sing? So, okay, so she did. And she and she was singing in this band and they would practice pretty often. They played a few parties and, you know, it was just fun for them. Well, the guitar player in that band, he was, a you know, going to business school and he was deeply influenced by Jeff Beck, John McLaughlin, like prog rock, you know, that, you know, fusion and prog rock kind of thing. Right. And watching him, he was the first guy that I was able to watch that was like a really extremely good guitar player I could watch. Oh, granted, I'd only been playing a couple of years. I just, well, I'm watching this guy go, whoa, what the fuck? Like, that is gnarly what that guy's doing. And so he he actually was one of my first teachers, and he he turned me on to, you know, prog rock, um, Mob Beach New Orchestra, Larry Coriel, like, you know, these, these really insane guitar players. And other jazz music, Thelonious Monk, you know, stuff that, stuff that was just not typical for a kid by then. I was, you know, getting into 12, 13, 14, 
people didn't listen to that stuff at my age. None of my friends did, except Carl, because he was forced to listen to it, because that's what I listened to. But, you know, I, I missed out on metal entirely. I, I didn't even know anything about metal. So I'm over here in, like, prog rock land, right. and then... A kid in my junior high bought Nevermind the Bollocks. And the first time I heard it, I was like, ah, this is lame. Well, then the second time I heard it, I was like, actually, this isn't lame. I kind of like this. And so when I was, I don't know, 13, 14, mm-hmm. it, it came out in the stores. I bought it, and I went absolutely ballistic for it. And from then on, punk rock. Now, at that point, though, punk rock, if you live, you know, maybe this, this probably isn't true if you live in a big city, but if you live you know, in a little strange city like I did that, you know, we were getting this stuff filtered from other cities. There was one record store in town buying punk rock records. Salt Lake City was never defined as a cultural hub. Not in any way. So what would fall under the umbrella of punk rock to a Salt Lake guy in 1980, 81, you know, 79, would would have encompassed everything from the Stranglers, the Police, Devo, the early two-tone ska records, eventually stuff from Los Angeles, the New York stuff, you know, obviously the Ramones, you know, but like Richard Hell and the Voidoids and, you know, all of these convergent weird influences coming coming in from, you know, but, but it wasn't just, it wasn't narrowed down to like hardcore. That was later for us in Salt Lake. We, we'd already been listening to all kinds of weird shit before we ever heard Black Flag even. It took a while for that stuff to, to make it to Salt Lake. So, you know, there was this, big breadth of interesting music that that my friends and I were all listening to. That included, you know, very fringe stuff from a punk rock angle. And it even, you know, and it might include like the stiff record stuff, like, you know, Elvis Costello or Nick Lowe and all of these things. Robert Fripp, you know, anything that wasn't Zeppelin is what we were listening to. (laughs) So it was all of those things coming together. But that prog rock influence was in there. That never really left. Now, that doesn't mean that I knew a damn thing about what I was playing. (laughs) I I didn't. I didn't know how to play prog rock. I don't know anything about music theory. I don't know anything about any of that stuff. I know what, you know, I know, I know where I am on the neck. I mean, I'm, you know, I speak music reasonably well, but I don't read music at all. So anybody, you know, assuming that I knew, know something about music or that there was any kind of like real incredible playing ability is totally mistaken. I emulated things that I loved that I heard, you know, I learned those things and tried to sort of incorporate them by my own ear. Right. Not by knowledge of what I was doing. Hearing your own experience about the way, you know, the different musical inputs, it's always nice to hear people are allowed to obviously get into whatever music they're allowed. I mean, it happened to me where it's like, you know, I'm here I am 14, 15, 16 years old. I had already gotten into the, you know, the pop punk that I was personally raised on, you know, your epitaph, your fat records, that sort of stuff, like no effects, propaganda, all that sort of, you know, that that stuff in the mid nineties. But then it's like for three years I was completely swallowed up by like hardcore and it's like that's like all i listened to but then only through like starting to work at like an independent record store it broke my mind of okay i can listen to other stuff and it's like to to have that realization obviously you're you know when you were you know 10 11 12 and start to have your head cracked open and be like oh dude i can listen like i can listen to anything it it, it obviously you know that totally informs obviously how you know i mean essentially the descendants obviously approached the way that they projected their music on the world, you know, that there was no, it was like, well, yeah, we're part of the scene, but we're also kind of really, really weird and thinking about feelings and girls and stuff like, <laughs> okay. So descendants, 
the way this entered the picture for me was that before the Fatty P came out, Posh Boy Records put out a cassette, and they had worked something out where they got a whole bunch of songs from SST and, and New Alliance and some Posh Boy stuff. And it was this weird mixture of like TSOL kind of, you know, some social distortion was on there. The Descendants were on there. Black Flag was on there. It was, it was um, just this funny cassette. And that that had what was actually a rough mix of I Like Food and Wiener Schnitzel. So I heard that and just about died. I was like, oh my God, that's the fucking coolest thing I've ever heard. What the fuck? This band is amazing. We found the Fat EP. We, uh, you know, we bitched at our, at our local record store and they got it in for us. And, and my little college came out, you know, but like the, those, those early, those South Bay bands and the, the Orange County bands, you know, in my neck of the woods, people were calling them hardcore bands, you know, way back when. So or outside of that mold. And I remember that they really triggered the Beatle thing in me. I don't think I knew why. But they, they did because, you know, I mean, so many of the, of the old bands were melodic, um, you know, the British ones in particular. I mean, if you look at the Buzzcocks, they were every, uh, every bit as much as Descendants or something. But it was really noticeably different in Descendants, something about the, the melodies that really caught my ear. And that's what we were trying to do in Salt Lake. As soon as Carl started playing, we always tried to make an effort to separate our parts enough, you know, that it wasn't just the Ramones, like I'm playing downstrokes and Carl's playing downstrokes and just mimicking the guitar lines. Right. We were always trying to establish a strong difference between the instruments so that they could both kind of have their own voice. We were trying to figure out, that was a weird turn point, that record for us. That, that made a huge, a, a huge impact on us. Pardon the interruption, my friends, but I am here to talk to you about something awesome. And that something awesome is Audible. Audible is the leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. And we, this very show, has a special offer exclusively for you fine people listening. I wanted to thank them so much for wanting to participate in this show and invest in what we have going on here. It's amazing. Audible offers over 150,000 books covering virtually every genre, from mystery to science fiction to biographies. You name it, they have it. Listen to audiobooks anytime, anywhere, including iPhones, your iPad. If you have something that is digital, you can probably listen to Audible on it. And here's the best part. Audible is offering 100 Words listeners a free, completely free audiobook along with a 30-day trial. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash 100 words to take advantage of this special offer. And by doing so, not only do you get the chance to check out an awesome service, but you support this show. If you guys do this, it's free. It will cost you absolutely nothing. Just check it out, see if you enjoy it. The show, get some kickbacks, get some like audibles, like, wow, this is amazing. We have a million people that have signed up to do this. Do it and you'll get something free. I wanna recommend something to you as well. It is a book that I personally read in the paperback form. You don't need to do that. You can just listen to it. Bob Mould, the singer of such legendary bands like Oscar Dew, Sugar, and his own storied solo career. He wrote a book called Shine a Light, and it's on Audible. You can get that for free. It's like six, seven hours worth of awesomeness. So go there, audiblepodcast.com slash 100 words, and you get it for free. Now here's the rest of our chat. To have that realization when you watch something that's being created in front of you that kind of already exists and it expresses how you either feel or what you want to accomplish musically, like you guys just saw that and were like, oh shit, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Like, that's what we want to do. It was, it was coming in a different form, right? you know, the, but, but, to, but to hear somebody else doing it. And, you know, I think as a musician, I had a very strange 
the way I discovered the band, one of my favorite bands of all time, was somebody sort of pointing out that that their guitar player, Piggy, that he rest in peace, was playing a lot of chords very similar to what I would choose to play. And when I heard it the first time, I was like, "Whoa, that's really weird!" Like I, I could, I, I, I get that. Like I, I speak that language right there. Only that guy's playing metal. Right. <laughs> weird. Like, you know, what a what a funny surprise that was. Right, 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 right. Um, the uh, and I think just because this like kind of encapsulates obviously a lot of, well, pretty much you know most of your musical career as far as you know obviously focusing on Descendants and all. I mean, filmage. I had a chance to see it. I saw one of the the first Southern California showings, like the one of the Long Beach. Uh-huh. I mean, first of all, I'm sure it's mind blowing for you to be like, "Oh, cool! There's a documentary about bands I played in." Like that's weird. I'm sure that that was like when when the project first got approached to you. I'm sure you were just like, "Well, good luck." It's like this is our job. We just we're going to be able to do a job at this. You should probably do it. And I was, was like, "Fuck, okay, go ahead, fine." I put you know I put everybody in contact and said, "Hey, these are my buddies. They want to do a documentary." And they sort of ran with it, and they you know, would go, hey, do you guys have any blah, blah, blah? Okay, fine. So we'd send them all of our shit. You know, <laughs> Here, here's every video of us I have. You know, story and between the interviews, we're able to sort of put the timeline of how everything went together. And it was really cool for me because there were, it, you know, I got to learn a few things in it. I mean, I've asked, you know, I've been up Bill's ass for years asking a little question that I possibly could about, you know, how this music came about and, you know, I was friends with Frank, you know, Frank was a, Frank was a pal, you know, we go fishing together all the time and, you know, I've gotten to learn firsthand from, from all the guys that were involved in the band, you know, certain aspects of it, but, you know, I, I learned a lot of things in it, you know, I was like, whoa, that's cool, you know, especially about the, uh, the period, the real formation of the band. I walked away from it feeling, it's weird, but it's like feeling like, all of the time that I've spent within the confines of this music, this independent music scene, like I feel validated, you know, like I, I left being like, dude, I haven't wasted my, wasted my time with this, you know? And it, it was obviously, I know that that's not like the intent of the movie, but like the, uh, just the way that it kind of laid everything out in regards to what we were talking about earlier, as far as like, like we're just, I mean, we're obviously just dudes. We've always been just dudes. We just happen to play in this band. And then on top of that, also putting it all in context of like, dude, we ate shit for years and years and years and no one cared about us. And like to have it kind of come full circle to where it's like, oh, okay, we now have people that care about us. Like it just makes it feel that sort of, you know, redemption story-ish and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure those, those levels of emotion you kind of felt when you were watching the movie too. Totally. Well, the, well, the interesting points that it makes that that I see a lot now, looking looking back over it over time, was that a everybody in the fucking audience must have been a musician because basically, they, I mean, we're talking about these little tiny shows played to very few people. You know, that's that's what this was. I mean, this was music made. You know, in a funny way, it it, it never needed to even leave the practice room, you know, there were just like shows. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll play shows, you know, that, I mean, or then at that time, but the, the same thing was kind of true for, for, for us in Salt Lake or Carla, uh, you know, that those paths were very similar, you know? So, so the fact that the, these few people in the audience took to this music so strongly, and as it did grow a little bit that, you know, people across the country started hearing it and, and find it with so strongly that it actually all of that time and and all of the other complexities of kind of this where like we don't really you know, we look like punk rock 
lockers and we, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, you know, every single thing that would do us any good is not, you know, as far as like trying to make the band popular, it was never done. Right. For that, you know, and, 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 you know, we could make a living from, it was like an absolutely preposterous living. And by the same token, we considered that success. As far as we were concerned, you know, we were Van Halen, you know, even though like really we were in a van and we made five bucks a day. But as far as where we were at with it, fuck yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Like, we, we don't have real jobs. We just play music full time. I can't believe we get to do this. That's where our heads were at. We, we were already as successful as we ever expected. We were already more successful than we probably ever expected to be. Right. <laughs> you know, before anyone even really gave a shit when the records were still selling almost nothing. Right. We were just able to go on tour. <laughs> you know, bands that obviously start with no sort of, you know, quote unquote business plan in mind. Um, you know, it's very incremental, exactly how you're saying, where it's like, okay, you record a demo, you record a seven inch, you record, oh, wow, we get an LP, cool. Um, you know, it's step by step. And then when you're actually at that step that you're talking about, where it's like, hey, we're on tour, you know, we're pretty broke, but we are on tour. Like, this is amazing. Holding on to that feeling. And like you said, being successful, even though really by all definitions of the term, like from a mainstream society, you're, you know, not successful. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. You live in poverty, but <laughs> right, right. You give a shit because you're just getting to tour that level was already culmination of all of that five year old dream of mine of wanting to do this and that to that level. That was that was all I needed at that point. You know what that meant to be able to do it that level at all. It was mind boggling. Yeah. And, well, the it, so, you know, the thing the thing is there's been continual renewal of that. Okay, at the point that I, I remember during the late eighties, early nineties with all, I was like, God, I wonder what it would be like to sell, you know, as many records as like Slip It In sold. Mm-hmm. You know? Slip It In it sold sixty thousand, right? Enough to get you thrown off of most labels at that time. That was my that was our like, you know, big business goal or whatever. <laughs> like, I wonder if we could sell sixty thousand or mm-hmm. whatever. You know. And and you know, meanwhile we're putting records out about farting or whatever. And but like that was we would have liked to have seen that happen. And so in ninety seven, when we put out Everything Sucks, it sold about two hundred thousand um within a, uh, the space of a year. And we were just our jaws were on the floor. <laughs> we were like, Are you fucking kidding me? Right. Like it just seemed like a joke, you know, like I can't believe it. That many people bought this record. Right. Like it, and, and so for us, the element of sort of surprise and, and all of that is still very much there. I mean, it, it you yeah. know, we're, we're all business aware now. We are. We're not, you know, we're grownups. We're 50. We got kids. We have houses and mortgages. And we have to, you know, we have to think about all of those things. They matter right. now. You know, as far as, as far as the roots of the band and the trajectory of the band over time, nothing could have been more unexpected. Right. Well, I, and, <laughs> and I think something, something else, I, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned like the, you know, obviously like there are financial realities. There are things that you, you know, you have families to provide for everything that you just listed. But I think that really speaks to the, uh, to the nature of the band. It, it, Cause especially after watching the movie where it's like, um, you know, you guys were always practical and I, I mean, practical in a sense of like, okay, we're going to move to the Midwest 
and be based out of here because it's easier for us to get to both coasts. Like, the, it, no fucking band. Like, I, I, if someone, like, <laughs> if someone, if, no, I know. And it, it, I mean, still to this day, like, I, I've never heard of a band. You hear a band's moving to New York City or LA. Like, obviously that makes sense. But from, from the way that you guys described it, it was uh, every move that you guys have made. It seems like it's practical in the sense of like, it makes sense between, you know, the four of you guys where it's just like, oh, yeah, like, of course, yeah, that makes sense. Why would we not do that? We're still very much that way. And that, and it really is it really is based in the sort of DIY thing that we kind of grew up seeing, you know, or in Bill's case was, was involved in, you know, if you if you think about Black Flag and SST and you right. know, all of those things. I mean, he witnessed all of that level of it firsthand. And, and in Salt Lake, the, you know, the realities of the local scene and being able to tour and so on were were different you know, from, from the Salt Lake perspective than they were from the Los Angeles perspective. Because, of course, in L.A., you know, in that greater area, you could have many shows. In Salt Lake, that was harder. You had to travel really far to go play a show outside, right. of, outside of Salt Lake. So that was more complicated. But living frugally you know, was kind of second nature. Uh, we, you know, we had to make practical decisions about how we did things. There was, we can't afford to do what these guys right here, like, these guys are on a bus. We can't swing that. <laughs> That's not going to work. Like we're not going to make enough money to even fucking pay our rent and get home if we do that. A lot of the trappings that m- many of the other bands were able to sort of get into and did, they weren't things that we could really make work for us. Right. It's a smaller band. Yeah. Sure. You know, as the movie documents, you had to start realizing the financial realities of being like, well, it's tough to make a living out of this thing. Like, was it difficult for you to kind of let, well, I wouldn't even say let go of the notion of obviously like being a quote unquote musician, but like, you know, when real life starts to infiltrate the world that you're obviously trying to build for yourself, um, was that in your own mind, was that a difficult transition for you? Or was it like, well, this is just something I need to do because, because of A, B, and C. No, it, it was it was difficult in some regards. So the way that all went down is all kind of fizzled out as far as being able to really tour much because I think we peaked, like I said, we started out with 35 people at our first show. We built it up over many years to where we you know, some people at our shows, you know, it was okay. We could, we could function and, and living in the Midwest with a, with low overhead, we had all the food we needed. We were okay. You know, at a certain point, our audience, well, let me back up a little bit. So we did our major label record. We thought, okay, well, fuck it. Let's try it. Let's see, let's see if, you know, what we can do. So we do our major label record and it fails miserably. Sales, sells 20 Really over the course of the next few years, I think our audience followed us for a long time that we built up. I think a lot of them kind of grew up and had to get jobs and had started families and, you know, they couldn't, you know, or they just lost interest in the band, whatever, whatever, something. The shows got smaller and smaller and we probably toured too much. Sure of that. And so, you know, we weren't really making enough money to justify being out there. We could, you know, we could scarcely, you know, keep a functional life together. And by then, you know, a couple of us were married and you know, three, three of us were married in all. It didn't break up. It, there was no thing. It's kind of, ah, we can't really do this. And so, you know, no tours really came up anymore. And so I moved down here to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I live now. I did that. I had a daughter by then. And I wanted my daughter to, you know, have, have like grandparents and my, my in-laws were, you know, they were ready and waiting, retired, ready for, for, you know, full <laughs> yeah. on like grandparents, right. you know, and it was like, okay, well, this is cheaper than living in Colorado. And so we pulled up stakes and my wife and I came here with our daughter. The first thing I did was right when I got here, um, I was contacted by some friends in the band MXPX 
this was in 2004, and they were like, dude, why don't you come, you know, if you're not touring or anything, why don't you come out and be our, you know, be our monitor engineer, drum tech, whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. So that's what I did. I, I went out and I was a tech. And I worked for, for about a year for MXVX teching. As started as a drum tech. Shortly after that, I was, you know, I added monitors to it. I was helping with, you know, the bass tech. You know, I was very involved as a crew guy. You know, we'd be out playing with people and they're like, you know, real, what are you doing here? Are you kidding me? Like, you're a, you know, you're a tech. And I was like, hell yes. This is, it was great. Right. They paid me, you know, they paid me a very decent wage. I was on a bus, you know, my, my comfort level was high. I wasn't driving anymore. I was a driver and all, you know, <laughs> you know I, <laughs> yeah. I did all the night driving. You know, I, I was like in a bunk watching movies. It was like, God, this is cake. You know, and people would ask, are you bitter about, you know, how that's gone on? These bands have gone on to be huge. You know, many of them using, you know, my expectations were never, this, this is completely outside of any expectation any of us ever had. I had a successful career, all the way from beginning to end. And if I never get to do it again, I still won. Right. <laughs> that was that was my attitude in 2004. Yeah. You know, that was really how I saw it. I was like, dude, I won. Well, then my son was born and I had to kind of, you know, I had to stop touring. I, you know, we needed <laughs> we needed me at home. Yeah, yeah. So so that began a 5-year period of nothing. No no shows, nothing. I mm-hmm. did like a couple of shows. That's it for 5 years. Right. Those years were hard. I'll, I will fully admit that. I could never commit to a band down here because, to me, a band is based around an incredible practice regimen. Mm-hmm. That's how you get good. That's what you do. You practice your fucking asses off until you're really, really good. Right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the life. You know, that couldn't happen here. I was only sporadic. So I really didn't do anything except I started, you know, I had my studio here, you know, recording bands. And, you know, I was still involved in music. Right. I was still, still part of music, still doing okay. Yeah. Um, I spent about a year working at Guitar Center while I built my studio. That was a very depressing, horrible year. <laughs> I <would fully> admit <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think it's one of those things, too, where it's just like, I mean, what makes those, those transition periods difficult is where it's like, you just have to reframe the context in which you're, dealing with whatever it is that you thought you were, you know, oh, I, 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 it's obviously you, no one ever views themselves as like, oh, dude, I'm going to be the retail king at, you know, Guitar Center, or, you know, video store or whatever. So it's like, I see why that it's not so much. You're just like, oh, man, it's such it's such a bummer. I have to be at home with my family. Like, that's terrible. But it's like, well, no, like, I just have to ref. I, I'm trying to reframe what it was that I've been doing for a majority of my life. Absolutely. It's real life. I mean, it's raising kids and, you know, and, and keep a roof over everybody's head. And, you know, it's that. I mean, and so, you know, I go to it the best I could and I had my studio. And so at least I wasn't, I wasn't roofing houses. You know, as far as I was concerned, I was still lucky. Yeah. So, and, you know, writing, you know, just kind of writing music, writing demos and, and all kind of got started getting a couple offers here and there. We'd play some shows, you know, and, and, and so that started to be fun. I even had a little bit of, you know, an occasional show. Oh, this is cool. And, you know, well, then we had some shows, but, you know, I, I guess around that time, around the time that we started doing the occasional all show is when we started seeing noticeable effects in Bill's bill stevenson's health you know and how how he was doing sort of on all fronts none of us could have understood what was coming we did we you know of course that was just completely like out of the blue when it when you know when it finally did happen but so we were supposed to go do some shows and the day before the day before 
like I get the phone call that Bill's in the hospital and he's just had this pulmonary embolism, you know, like a massive, you know, like a sausage sized, you know, blood clot coming from his legs and jamming through his heart into his lungs, nearly killing him. Right. So, you know, at that point, nobody really knew what was going to happen from then on. He had become pretty not that functional. You know, what had been happening leading up, you know, or sort of through that time was that, that I got, you know, bored with not doing music and I was kind of starting to freak out about it. So I did that record. It's called The Seven Degrees of Stephen Edgerton, which is like a me trying to address one thing that I haven't ever been particularly strong at, which is writing songs. Sure. If you go back through, you know, Descendants and all, I'm, I'm far and away our least songwriter. And of those songs, none of them are like, you know, classics or nothing. I like clean sheets or whatever. You know, I wrote like, you know, I, I wrote stuff that really didn't impact people much. And of course, as a Beatles fan, ultimately... I wanted to write songs that impact people. I mean, that's what I would have loved to have been able to do. That just wasn't in the cards for me. I was, you know, I did, I couldn't do that. I could do lots of other stuff, but the songwriting thing never came to me that well. Lyrics never came to me that well. Well, the seven degrees record was part of me trying to learn how to be a better songwriter. Mm-hmm. I was writing the melodies myself. It, it got me, it was fun for me because I got to play the drums and bass, which I love playing those just as much as guitar. I'm really fanatical about drums, really crazy about drums. So I made that record, you know, just to sort of keep me losing my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Stuck down here in the middle of nowhere with no friends. You know, like, <laughs> right. Uh, well, you, so, I mean, it's, it's cool because I really like the way that you, fr- you phrased it earlier, where it's just like people can go one of two ways when music starts to be, uh, you know, I, for lack of a better term, a chore in the sense of like, oh man, real life gets in the way, whatever. But you still did what you did to be involved. And like you said, to not be crazy, because like, the, obviously there's the flip side of that where you just, you just give up on music. Like, you know, I know that's not an option for people like you and me, but the, the other people where it's like, well, I, I can't give that up because this shit is too hard. I can't pay attention to it anymore. I can't focus on it, but you didn't do that, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was not, that definitely wasn't my problem. Anything I was, you know, I was exploding with stuff in different periods. I'd have these really creative little bursts where I'd just jam out a bunch of songs and be like, whoa, cool, fuck. You know? <laughs> yeah. I wrote some lyrics that I didn't hate, you know, a couple of times. I was like, wow, fuck, all right. That's, that's cool. Like, you know, I might make, there's still, you know, something around in there. So I had to find context in which I could still do, in which I could do something musical. And touring was going to be out of the question, but the Seven Degrees record at least made it so I could, um, you know, I could I could be involved in music and I could do something. I found a way to to be involved in it still, you know, even if you know, even if it sold a thousand copies, fine, okay, I don't care. Like I, you know, I I'm compelled to do this. I've been compelled my entire life. Like this is what this is what I self-identify as. This is what I do. I may not, you know, get to do it in any real way, but still. When I, you know, if somebody asks me what I am, I'm a musician. <laughs> right. <I> am. <laughs> yeah. This and, is this is how I identify myself. You know, I I made that record and didn't, you know, I had no idea what it would do, and I didn't really give a fuck what it would do. Really, I I just I was compelled to make it. I loved doing it. I had a blast. I I loved how all the songs came out. I loved the funny, weird collaboration thing of just sending my song off to somebody and getting it back and going, "Wow, kick ass!" Like, listen to what this guy did. That's great. You know, and. And so that was really fun. Well, then, you know, then uh, I did a couple little shows for that, for that. And Bill, Bill and his family came down to Tulsa 
and he and he learned some of the songs and he played drums with me. Well, it was a very interesting thing because playing with Bill and Carl, but you know, with, obviously, but with Bill, uh, Bill was slowing down really bad. Too long before those shows, I was talking to Bill on the phone, and he's like, "Dude, I can't. Like, my my vision is going funny." Like, I might look at you and it would look like your arm is out of your head. I don't know what the fuck's going on. So he went to the optometrist who said, your eyes are fine. Go get an MRI. And he did. And that's when they found the brain tumor. The brain tumor was pressing on his optic nerve, which is causing the, the visual distortions he was seeing. So, you know, a month or so passes. We did the, we did the little, you know, seven degree shows. And then Bill goes there, has his surgery, comes out alive. We're all, you know, blown away. And, and, and of course, you know, the first time I talked to him on the phone afterwards, I, I didn't call him the next day. I called him the day after that. I, you know, I figured he was probably, you know, completely comatose. It's like turning the clock back 15 years. He's hyper energetic. Like he was when we were, you know, in 1987, right. like 86, 87, all over again. Like, wow. Okay. You know, so he's healing. Uh, everything is going to be, that's great. And I think, Milo's involvement in the seven degree record kind of woke a little bit of his thing up, you know, cause, cause I had, I had asked him to sing on the song and I, I wrote the lyrics. All you have to do is drive to my friend's house. He lives an hour from you. Walk through the door, sing it four times, walk out. All you have to do, like, you know, I won't put you through, you know, the ringer on this. He's like, cool, no problem. So he went and did it. He had fun around the same time. We're kind of, you know, dad, so you, but what about this band? Like, you ever play, you know, any shows with this band? So all of a sudden, like, I will, you know, was kind of like, oh, I'm play a show. That wasn't out of the question. And then he got an offer to play Australia. And I think Milo, you know, who normally is like, well, I can't really do it. He was like, you know, Bill survived your death. He's got big debts. Maybe we should just go ahead and take these shows. Like, we'll go ahead and do this. It'll be right. you know, I'm in the mood. So we did that. And I think Milo from that discovered that he could do, you know, shows in, in a limited capacity, really have fun with it. It wasn't a, you know, a, a choice of like, do one of the two, you know, or the other science or music, which is it going to be? He, he can do both. And so now I think he knows that. And so we just we can just take a handful of shows. So there it is. Like next, I'm back to like being a part-time musician. Yeah. Thing I ever thought was going to happen. Yeah. Mentioning the movie again. It's like, I just love the way that it wrapped up because it's one of those things where it's like, now we're at a place where it's like, we are a sustainable band. We can kind of, in the sense of we can do what we want when we want, as we've always wanted to do, but there are no demands on us besides the demands we put on ourselves. And like, once you get to a point, as a musician, where you're there, it's like like you, like you joked around earlier, where it's like, oh, dude, I've won. It's it's funny because everybody along the way feels like they obviously have, no matter what era that they got into what you personally have done musically, it obviously doesn't matter because they are a part of something that is obviously like honest, meaningful, however you'd like to phrase it. And it's very apparent, you know? There were some complications with my daughter's birth. My 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 wife had very severe preeclampsia and, and kind of an experience during birth. And and during her recovery, um, you know, I mean, I, I expected to, you know, involve the father, but I was like the guy gung ho for kids. That wasn't me. You know, I, I admit <laughs> yeah. that. You know, this was my wife's. You know, she was like, okay, yeah, okay, we'll do this. Yeah, fine. So we did it having happened was that I had to be very, very strongly involved 
in in the beginning, like more so than I had maybe expected. Uh, you know, and I, I'm sure nobody's really prepared for their first child. There's nothing like that. I was probably even less prepared for it, and having to really step up as much as I could. Well, I found myself happy in that role, and so you know, I'm I'm very happy as a soccer dad. I'm my soccer dad thing. I'm full into it. So so you know, being being completely invested in that like i can't just be gone all the time you know that that's just not that's just not something i even want to do <laughs> really you know but you know be able to do this thing part-time like this and just fly in see my buddies have a blast do the music for all the right reasons go home it's fucking killer you can't have it better than that <laughs> no you know it feels like a uh you know a, a redemption where it's just like okay after everything is said and done you know the good guys do win some of the time. The worst stuff ever doesn't always bubble to the top and is the most meaningful thing of all time. Um, it's like, no, this, this, you know, you can cite the, you know, your own musical careers are like, well, no, yeah, like, you know, crazy stuff can happen in times and places that you never would have imagined. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the funny thing is now all of these years later, you know, the things that, that made the band, you know, the friendship angle of it, which, which was, of course, completely critical to the beginning of it because that's really you know where 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 it began. That part of it is still fully fully intact in our band. I mean, we're friends with everybody that was ever in the band, and us guys in it now are extremely close. So you know, for for us, all the, you know, getting to go play a show is going to hang out with your best friends. It's a party. It is. You know, I mean, it's like it's a blast. We go play a show. We. You know, we all practice really hard on our own. We show up and hope for the best, you know, <laughs> but we know how to prepare for these things because we've a lot of years, you know, learning how to do this together. And we, we know what to expect musically from the, uh, is, you know, we, we've done this a long time together. So, uh, so it's just all good. Like, I, like I said, it just, it makes people like myself, uh, extremely excited who got into you guys via the pump, pump up the volume soundtrack. It's just like, you know, like I said, no matter what entry point a person has to what you've done musically, um, they feel like they can get something, um, uh, redemptive out of it. I, I think people are very black and white with, uh, you know, the music that you've done. It's like they either fucking get it or they think it's the worst thing ever. And that's yeah. They I, just don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think I think that's a good place. It's amazing to be. that so many people got it, and that and that's, right. you know that there that there's there's new people finding it. Well, um, it's a slow process for us, like putting together another record. But we're like, fuck it, you know. I mean, there's no reason not to. Let's do <laughs> another record. So we're tossed on back and getting everybody's getting the demos done and. You know, and learning each other's song and sort of, you know, get, getting it together, you know, very cool. It's awesome. Well, I really appreciate all the time that you've given me. And uh, it's I hope it was enjoyable for you because it was for me. So absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Again, I feel like I say this with so many shows, but it's like I could just talk to these people for like hours. For one, that probably isn't the most compelling content. <laughs> and for two, I just feel that's a little rude. Thank you, Steven. If you haven't listened to his stuff, fucking do it. All of his stuff, his solo stuff, everything he's done with bands. He's a very talented musician, and you should pay attention to all of it, because I do. Visit 100wordspodcast.com. Visit propertyofzack.com. Our editor, as always, is Tom Richfield. And until next week, be safe, everybody. <laughs>